to Welcome to Drill to Detail, and I'm your host, Mark Ripman. So as founder as well as technical lead for an analytics consultancy, my day is typically spent half in DBT and the other half in HubSpot. And so I was particularly interested to find today's guest, HubSpot's Director of Infrastructure, James Densmore, talking about his local DBT meetup in Boston the other day on Twitter. And as I've been fascinated over the past few years, thinking about what kind of data analytics infrastructure SaaS companies like HubSpot must have, and how someone working in that type of role thinks about data analytics, data infrastructure, and data engineering, I'm very pleased to be joined today by James. So welcome to the show, James. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So James, just tell, if anybody who, well, if anyone doesn't know you, um, just tell us what you do, what your role is now, and how you got into what you're doing now. Yeah, so my role right now is uh, Director of Data Infrastructure uh, at HubSpot. Um, and what that means primarily is focusing on the data infrastructure for the BI and analytics uh, kind of core team at HubSpot. Um, and, and it kind of had a journey to get there through, started really in software engineering. So I know people get into data from a lot of different directions. Some people come in, you know, they're more business oriented. Um, some come from a, a technical background. And I was very technical, um, you know, came out of a computer science program, software engineer. Uh, and I was at a company uh, called Wayfair, which is now a pretty big e-commerce company. But at the time, it was a, a pretty small startup uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, and was a web developer. Um, and the, the sort of growing BI team was very small there, and they needed some help getting started with uh, some more of the technical work uh, behind their QuickStream database, which uh, back in you know about 2010 was, was still quite a lift in the, uh, the olden days, if you will. Uh, so yeah, I got started there and, and just took an opportunity to kind of like literally move across the floor of, of the office and work in uh, the BI team and uh, was working with, you know, we were on uh, Microsoft uh, SQL analysis services. So like, you know, building OLAP cubes and we were just starting to think about migrating from just a pure SQL database uh, to uh, Netiza, uh, which I believe got bought out by IBM ever since. So that was kind of my entry into BI. Um, and since then, have have moved on to a couple different roles, uh, leading teams at uh, Safari Books, uh, which is O'Reilly Media, uh, and then as well as uh, another startup. And then in between, did some consulting uh, at a company called Data Liftoff that I started. And uh, yeah, that kind of led me to HubSpot, and that's where I am today. You mentioned their Nateza and analysis services. So, I mean, OLAP as a as a tech, as a kind of concept and technology, it's not something you hear about much these days. But you know, it was at the time it was it was very interesting, wasn't it? And and the performance and the speed and the interactivity that you got from those kind of databases and those tools was 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 very good, wasn't it? Yeah, and I will say that uh, I had never heard of it before I kind of jumped into that role, and. Uh, you know, so my, my background with software engineering, you know, you're in relational databases and, you know, you're not thinking about the, the speed and performance of those large data sets from an analysis standpoint. So I'll be honest, it took me a little while to get my head around it. You know, what is this thing doing? Um, and then once you get it, you can almost never really move past that way of thinking. Even today, when I'm not building OLAP cubes, I still think dimensionally uh, with data. So I think anyone that, that's worked with with that uh, kind of keeps it with them, I found. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I always say that um, dimensional modeling and, and Kimball and so on are things that um, yeah, not many people know about really, or certainly an un- a surprisingly small amount of people know about that when they're working with, um, I suppose, tools like DBT and, and doing data modeling and so on these days. But those those kind of golden rules about how you design a dimensional model, and, and I suppose in a way, the different roles of the different layers in the in the of the sort of data infrastructure and data architecture. They're really useful skills to have and really useful concepts to understand, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, even today when, you know, we're building out, like I said, you know, I use DBT um, or, you know, HubSpot does, and I've used it in the past. It, it is one of those things that even building data models in that sort of modern, if you will, uh, way of doing things, I still love to see candidates who have, you know, knowledge of Kimball or some kind of understanding of, of dimensional modeling. Because I, I think there's some best practices there that whether we, we you know, kind of connect the dots now or not, you know, we're still doing those things, uh, even in new ways. Yeah. 
And I suppose, I suppose e-commerce and, and web analytics and so on back in those days were the really big, uh, I suppose, you know, use cases and consumers of data that led to things like Natiza. I mean, what was it like working with that volume of data then, which actually arguably would be laughable now, but, but it led to you having to go and get like multi-node MPP systems. Yeah, you know, what was it like working in that, in that space at the time? Right. Yeah. Nowadays, it's, you know, something that it doesn't seem so crazy, but at the time it was... And we're thinking about uh, a quickstream database for a large e-commerce company. That was that was the coolest thing. You know, it was it was so difficult um, to go from these smaller data sets that we were accustomed to working with, and then apply the same characteristics to our work with the larger ones. And that was that was my first realization of you know it wasn't just about optimizing anymore. It was about thinking of a totally new way of doing things. And yeah, that, I mean, that data, we started to, you know, you sort of started the old way, you know, which was like, yeah, how can we just, you know, put more indexes on our tables and, and partition, you know, our cubes and things like that to, you know, to actually process and get any value out of this data. We have to think about it uh, in a more modern way and, and not just doing things incrementally better. So that was the first time I, I sort of ran into an architectural change. Um, and, you know, that that is kind of carried forward as well. Okay. And and so then you moved on to the work at uh, Safari Books. And, and I noticed um, that you've worked with things like Redshift and Python and Postgres and so on there. So that struck me again as a, a bit of a change in terms of the products you were using and the way in which you develop and so on. I mean, what was it like moving from, I suppose, um, you know, the world of things like the teaser and very structured data, data sources and so on into working with those tools um, and I suppose more cloud technologies and open source? Yeah, that was the first time I really dove into uh, cloud. Um, and, you know, so when I started at Safari, we were really just putting together a, a centralized BI team for the first time. You know, the company had kind of spread that out a bit and had been doing a lot of this work, um, but not under one umbrella. And we had been uh, using a lot of different technologies. And I saw the opportunity to say, like, you know, we could do something like Natiza, which is extremely expensive. You know, it's um, for those that haven't used it, you know, you literally get a rack, you know, a server rack that you have to manage uh, type of thing. And we wanted to to kind of move beyond our Postgres data warehouse, which is what we had, and think about how we were going to scale. And Redshift was really kind of just getting, it maybe been around for a couple of years, um, but really had started to reach a level of maturity uh, that, that we wanted to take a risk on it. And honestly, the biggest problem at that time was, Convincing everybody, especially, you know, security and legal to say, we're going to go to the cloud with our data. You know, it's a little bit easier today, uh, but at that time, still a lot of pushback. Um, so, you know, we took advantage of that. And uh, really, it, it kind of changed a lot for all of us working there. Um, you know, we were just immediately able to start to think about not just Redshift, but, you know, well, what else do we move to the cloud and what else can we do? Uh, you know, in a more scalable way than uh, we were doing on our own infrastructure. So did you find that that your team were the ones that led the move into the cloud, you know, analytics and data and so on? Or was it the fact that the rest of, of Safari books was moving onto the cloud, made that then acceptable and and, and uh, easier for you to do? Who led it? Was you or was it with the rest of the business? It was mostly the data team. I think we were the first ones to, to go there. Um, you know, there were other teams that were, I would say, Kind of poking around more like at like third-party SaaS tools, uh, rather than thinking about the cloud infrastructure um, as where they were going to build their own uh, type of thing. Okay, and what was what was Pentaho like to work with? I mean, again, there's, a, there's I suppose there's a whole range of, of products in that suite, but it's something I've been I've had an eye on in the past. But um, what was what was your kind of experience with Pentaho then? Yeah, it was it was a I think it was good at what it did, which was provide um, a, an open source analytics platform where you could build you could build things like OLAP cubes uh, reports you know I think it had a bad reputation as far as it wasn't as glossy as things like tableau and, and other tools but I found that uh, you know we started there's an open source version and then there was a commercial version um, and we did move toward the commercial one uh, and I think they did a pretty good job of saying you know here's what the community version offers the community was really strong um, and so that was a tool that I think was another one where it was kind of a stepping stone for us, you know, in between uh, it, people were using Excel sheets, right? Kind of just connecting down to, to data sources or doing flat files 
but we weren't cr- quite ready to move towards uh, some of the bigger enterprise BI tools. Um, so it really kind of filled that gap for a long time, and, and we got a lot out of it. Okay, okay. And so you looked at, you used Redshift. Did you ever get, um, I suppose, diverted or looking at things like um, uh, Hadoop at all? So did you ever look at things like Hive and stuff like that, or did you go straight to, to Redshift as your as your sort of um, solution? Those. Yeah, we actually did both. Um, so we had a Hadoop cluster, which was managed on-prem. Uh, so we had a really great uh, sysops team there, which is one reason we hadn't moved to the cloud yet. Um, and so they were they were managing our Hadoop cluster, which for me, that's always the hardest part, is the administration of the Hadoop cluster. Um, but we used that to process some of our larger data sets and then take some of that output and send it to our warehouse. Uh, so we were running those in parallel. Um, and, and I still find that today, a lot of companies are still doing that. You know, they've moved to Hadoop or Snowflake, or sorry, they've moved to, to Redshift or Snowflake or BigQuery, but they're still using Hadoop or something uh, similar uh, to do some of their processing. Okay. And was it was it around this time that your interest in data infrastructure and data engineering came out? Um, you know, what, what led to that particular focus in your, in your career, really? Yeah, I, I want to say it was probably Redshift. It was probably, um, maybe not Redshift in particular, but the advent of, really taking advantage of the cloud and just the way that that changed what we could do with data. It became less of a, um, less of, you know, an, uh, you know, analysis first uh, for me as a, uh, you know, it was, we can do a lot of this analysis because of the technology where before the technology was holding us back. And so it just felt like a world where, you know, you could do all these things that you've always wanted to do. Uh, for me, obviously that was only a couple of years into my data career, but there were a lot of there was a lot of pent up demand for that kind of stuff. Excellent, excellent. And so, data liftoff. Then, so tell us a bit about that, and and um, I suppose how that started, and and what that is now, and and um, I suppose your work as a consultant and in that kind of area, really. Uh, for years, I had this this dream of helping companies that that didn't have a data team, uh, whether that would be because of funding or because of you know, they just didn't have uh, the right leadership in place to identify the need uh, and really help them kind of get off the ground. It's, it's data liftoff, uh, you know, uh, and it was it was something that I had been kicking around for a while. And I finally decided to just go forward and do it as a consultancy. Um, and I, the reason I did that was, you know, there's something about being new to a company. You sort of have, you're naive in a good way, right? It's, as you know, like working with companies, you come in, and you're not held back by the way things were always done or, you know, a lot of that history that once you've been around for a while, just becomes part of you. And so it was a great opportunity to, to try to uh, go out and help companies really kind of step back from where they were and look for what could be done uh, to get them kind of moving in the direction where they could eventually become self-sustaining. So it was less about going in and trying to stay for a long time as it was about looking for needs uh, you know, building a plan and then actually helping build the initial infrastructure, which they would then own. Um, and as I eventually moved into HubSpot uh, not that long ago, I, I've kind of kept it around as more of a content library, um, but also something where I'm trying to share as much as much content, both free and, and low cost content uh, for individuals who are just getting into that uh, business. As I did find along the way that there's a lot of great, you know, analysts, uh, data analysts who, if they were just a little more technical, could help their company, you know, on the infrastructure side or the other way around. You know, maybe a data engineer who they just know so much about the infrastructure side, but need a little bit more um, seasoning on the analysis or data science end of things. And so it, it's sort of been kept around. And um, I found a lot of people are interested in that kind of content of, you know, they have some data background but they want to move to an adjacent uh, role in data. There's definitely a niche there. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about um, HubSpot then. So I mentioned HubSpot earlier on. It's a tool that I use quite a bit. And, um, uh, and I know that HubSpot is more than just the, but maybe the part that I use, but just maybe just for anyone who doesn't know what it is, just talk about the company and um, what its business is really. And um, and I suppose um, the role of data or, or certainly a, give us a flavor of what data means to, uh, to HubSpot. Yeah, so HubSpot is, uh, you know, it's a public company. It's been around for, you know, 15 plus years, um, which seems like a long time now. Um, 
when I say it, but um, you know, they're, I think they're best known for their CRM, uh, which is, I believe what you're using and, you know, so to manage your, your customer relationships, uh, that's kind of where they started. Um, and, and since we've grown into really uh, an enterprise, I would say more of a um, all purpose uh, business to help your business grow. You know, it's all about helping our customers grow. And so it's moved beyond the CRM into what we call different hubs. Uh, so there's a sales hub, uh, a service hub, a marketing hub, a CMS hub that we just launched. And all this is connected to your CRM, you know, to manage your, your business across both the sales, you know, the uh, support, the marketing, all those aspects. So you can do anything from build a website, build landing pages, A-B test, um, you know, send marketing emails. And really, it all becomes one integrated uh, product on the HubSpot platform. Um, so it's getting to be a big company. We're over 3,300 people now uh, based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. But we have a large office in uh, Dublin, Ireland as well, and a few other small offices around the world. And then, uh, you know, we have, uh, we're building up our remote capabilities, which couldn't come at a better time, to be honest, now that we're all distributed anyway. So, um, you know, we're really all over the world and, and now, you know, all at our homes. Okay. I mean, so I, I use HubSpot to, um, as I say, store all our customer details and, and particularly the fact that you can add in custom properties and all these kind of things. So I link it to, to segment, I link it to everything else. And, and you know, even I have a huge amount of data in there. Um, so the volume of data that you must deal with in aggregate must must be immense, really. I mean, just I mean, give us a sort of sense of, of, of the scale of the sort of things that you do, really. And um, I suppose you know, how much data you're typically working with on a daily basis. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's important to distinguish between the, the analytics data we collect and then our customers' data. So, you know, the data that you're storing, you know, we, we don't bring that into our uh, analytics infrastructure. You know, we don't want to, you own your data. That's certainly something that we don't want to analyze uh, at, that, at that level of detail. And so what one of the challenges is, is because of that volume of data uh, overall, as well as all the data we're collecting, you know, just as far as our our own analytics. You know, we use HubSpot to sell our product as well. Um, so we have our own customer data uh, in there. And so one of the challenges is filtering through A, what's valuable, and B, what can we actually use, you know, for for decision making in an ethical uh, way. Um, so, you know, like I said, our customers' data, our customer data about our customers' customers is off limits there. But data about our own customers, uh, certainly. Uh, you know, that's data that just like you can, you know, uh, move your HubSpot data into other tools and move data into HubSpot. We're doing that at a massive scale. Um, and it's pretty neat to be running your own business on your product, something that I've, I haven't been a part of before. Um, and so that data is, as you can imagine, is it's all sorts, right? You know, we have well-structured data like our, uh, you know, just like our, our list of customers and all that. Our list of prospects, but we also have a lot of you know raw text data. We have you know JSON event data because as we were talking before about clickstream databases, you know we we still collect all sorts of analytics events uh, on all of our our sites. Um, you know we do a lot of inbound lead content, so we do a lot of blogging. Kind of fits with our narrative, and that data is really valuable. So there's a lot out there that it's really anything that you that you might get out of a traditional uh, CRM, uh, but then you add on all these other components that we're running our business on, we have a massive customer support team and we're using our product to manage that. So there's a lot there that uh, it's everything uh, that you can imagine. Uh, but I would say our largest data sets are definitely around our, you know, our, our, our web analytics and events and really what all those customers and all just the visitors to our blog and other sites are, are visiting. Okay, so what was, I mean, it sounds like a silly question to ask you now, but what was it that attracted you to work at HubSpot? I mean, I, I imagine what you just said to me is the reason, but what, why did you end up there and what, what, what kind of made you maybe give up the idea you had with, with uh, you know, with uh, Data Liftoff and, and, and commit to working with uh, HubSpot? Yeah, I would say I was really sold on, well, there's two things. One is HubSpot as a company um, has a tremendous reputation and uh, it's, it's well-deserved. It is just a company that, really cares about their employees and customers. Um, and I know a lot of companies say that, but spending time there, it's really true. And I think it's it's a culture that I don't run across very often 
top to bottom. And so that was just the opportunity to work for that kind of organization was, was always tempting. Um, but what really got me in on the data side was the fact that uh, HubSpot right now is investing a lot in their data infrastructure and their data team. It's, it's clearly a strategic priority. And, you know, I've always been attracted in the past to building a group from the ground up. Did that at Safari, um, did that at a company called Degreed I was at, uh, focused on data science more there. But this was an opportunity to come in at a time when an existing team was doing a really good job. And on top of that, they were going to get investment to really, uh, you know, add, add leadership and add, you know, engineers and uh, PMs and everything that you would need to really build out that organization. So um, I had never really been, I'd never seen an opportunity where I could jump in to something that was already, you know, the, the groundwork was already there, but then have resources that you never have at a startup. You know, you just, you don't walk into a startup typically and have the ability to, to grow your team uh, like that from day one. So there's a lot of unique challenges in that, but it, for me, it was something I'd never done before. Uh, and for me, that's, that's a really great learning opportunity. Okay. Okay. That's a great lead in really to, to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is how a team structured in a, in a, in a SaaS business like, um, uh, like, like HubSpot. So what does, tell us, give a paint a picture of what the data team looks like. And I suppose how that team interacts with the rest of the business and maybe just maybe talk about what, what your role is in there as well. Just give us some kind of context. Yeah. So HubSpot has a, a pretty unique model. Um, no, not totally unique, but a little bit different than I've been exposed to in the past where I've been part of centralized BI teams, um, which definitely work up to a certain point where, you know, you have your data infrastructure team uh, within it, you know, doing the more technical work. So your data engineering and all that, you're building your data warehouse on that team. And then you have analysts on that team. And then I've been at companies where uh, it's completely decentralized, where really you have a core data infrastructure team that's handling your ingestions, maybe some transformations, uh, but really just making sure that, you know, your your warehouse has the basic building blocks and then the analysts are distributed, you know, in each department. HubSpot, we're doing it a little bit differently. Um, and this is where we're really growing. We're, we're a kind of a hybrid model where our core business intelligence team, we have a data infrastructure team, which is what I oversee, which is our uh, our data engineers doing our ETL work, as well as our what we call data warehouse engineers who are doing uh, kind of building our core data assets. Uh, so they're more in the fundamentals of the data warehouse, you know, taking that ingested data and building out kind of our first line of what we think of as kind of like vetted data models. So ones that we trust, we have great validation on. Um, and then we're then working with, uh, we have some uh, analytics engineers, which is a, a job title that I think has been popularized by by DBT. Um, so we have some of those on our team who are, are so we have a, you know, a small number of those on the centralized team working on what I would consider kind of like the global data assets uh, for the company. But then we have a, a large community of distributed analysts across the company, hundreds of them, um, who are also empowered to uh, build their own data models. Uh, we use Looker as our, uh, our dashboarding tool and visualization. So they're also building their worker models and dashboards. So we've kind of, we're trying to do it both ways, um, which is, it's honestly, it's a challenge, um, but it's something that, that does scale really well um, if you're well-coordinated across the company. And I think we're, we are that kind of company that even though we're on the larger side, uh, we have a pretty, pretty tight culture uh, amongst those analysts and our, our business intelligence group that it does work. Uh, so it is a little bit unique, but it's something that, uh, it, it, it can just scale as we continue to grow the company. Okay. So in terms of technology, I mean, do you, I mean, is it, is it homegrown technology you use? Do you use off the shelf? Do you, what, what, what does at that scale and the kind of work you do, how, how does the actual technology look? Yeah, it's, it's a mix. Um, you know, we, I think we, well, I'll talk about our, uh, the tool set first. So we, um, most of our data ingestions, uh, you know, a lot of that is homegrown. Uh, we're doing a lot of, of custom Ingestions, both from internal systems as well as uh, you know third-party SaaS tools that we use uh, out there, and then you know a lot of our uh, we use so a lot of open-source tools. We use Apache Airflow um, for data orchestration, uh, so certainly one that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, we so we use Snowflake as our our data warehouse, um, 
And I know that's growing in popularity. I think we were one of the earlier uh, adopters. So we've actually had it around for quite a while now and pretty comfortable there. And then on the top of our stack is Looker, uh, as I mentioned. And that's where all our analysts and, and users are. Uh, so in between all that, you know, to kind of grow it all together, there is a lot of homegrown, uh, you know, kind of, you know, data ingestions and, and processing and, and validation. You know, once where we see a good fit, we will always kind of look at a tool that's already there. Um, I think we tend a little bit more to the build versus buy, but it really is, uh, you know, we take every new project that comes along and we, we have that conversation. We don't jump. You know, some companies jump right to like, what's the SaaS tool that will do it for me? And some always build. Uh, we try to make it a conversation we have up front of, is there, a, you know, is there a great tool out there? Is there an open source framework? Or is it something we need to build ourselves? Mm. So I guess probably another big factor on that is the cost of running it day to day. I mean, that, again, that volume you process and analyze. I mean, how much does cost, it's a silly question, really, but how much does cost drive your choice over this and how you build things? Well, I think with things like Snowflake, you think about it in a different way than you used to. Um, you know, when we're talking about, uh, we, we have conversations and Snowflake is the first time you can really do this at, at scale and think, you know, what will this, what will the cost be for me to run, you know, double the, double the size warehouse or, you know, things like that, where you're starting to, you can break down costs into tiny increments. Um, and I think other products are moving in that direction as well. So we have that you know, discussion with a lot of others, you see things like Stitch, you know, they're in a, a volume-based pricing model, you know, so for, for doing that ETL work, you know, that's always a conversation that you have to have of, well, this is great, you know, um, but what's the volume pricing uh, as you start to get these larger data sets and, and what makes more sense to have an engineer customize? Uh, but it, it is a big part of it. Uh, but I think the other part of it is, you know, what fits well with our, the rest of our systems um, and what limitations are there if we were to go out and, and replace a custom uh, setup with, with tooling. So cost is definitely one component and, but it's not the only one for us. Okay. Okay. So, so, I mean, you mentioned earlier on about you've got a distributed or sort of hybrid model where you've got analysts that are out in the business and marking for you as well. And you're using DBT and using all these kind of things. So how do you, how do you, I suppose, in a way, um, take the ideas you've got and the structure and the workflow and so on that you've got at the center and then have that used in the business? And maybe are there times in which maybe you do things differently in the business? How does, how does scaling out that idea around analytics engineering work in a company like uh, HubSpot? Well, some of it has been pretty organic. Uh, it's actually come from our analyst community. Uh, so, you know, there's, I would say it's a very, even though it's distributed, like I said, I think those, those analysts from even from different teams uh, do a really good job of kind of collaborating, knowledge sharing, uh, you know, going to some of the same meetups. So there's a lot of, a lot of ideas from that community that are generated and come back to our team where they might say, you know, Hey, we'd love to invest in this, or we'd love to, you know, make sure we have tests that check for that. Um, and, and we'll certainly help support that. Some of it comes internally and, you know, we'll do things, you know, we've, we've kind of teamed up with those, uh, those analysts on how we do code reviews, you know, and like how we, how we start to get some standardization around uh, documenting data models and uh, tables and columns. And so we, we try to make sure we provide the tooling and we let that community make use of it. Um, but it, again, it, it does work both ways. And it's great when an analyst comes to you and says, ah, you know, DBT is great. How do I, you know, how do I get this to be more widely adopted uh, or something like that? Uh, so it, it does become, it's almost like an internal, uh, you know, if you think about like some of these communities that have sprung up, DBT, uh, not just a tool, but it's it's a great community. We kind of have that, that system internally. And that's really the only way we can make it work. You know, it's not something that across a large company, you can set, you know, big directives and make sure. Uh, everybody's following them. It really has to be a little bit more organic and everyone has to buy in. Okay. So do you have one warehouse for the entire HubSpot or do you, do you, is it, is it kind of uh, more distributed? I mean, how, how do, what's your, I suppose, data architecture and warehouse architecture like in that respect? Yeah, we certainly, you know, those kind of core data assets, that's in a, you know, a single warehouse that, that we own. Uh, we make sure we have certain SLAs around that. But the great thing about Snowflake, uh, it's really easy to kind of spin up uh, more of like a data mart model. And so we certainly can do that as well. And 
it, it gives the analysts, you know, that are in each department, a lot of autonomy, you know, it's, if they had to wait on that's, that's been the pushback on these more uh, traditional centralized BI teams, you know, it's been, uh, I just want to add this one column, right. You know, and I have to wait. Um, and now that the tooling out there, uh, like DBT and other tools have caught up and really empowered analysts, they don't want to wait anymore and they really don't have to. So we try to make sure we have the right, the right balance. You know, we can have our core data warehouse, but there's no reason that uh, these kind of satellite data marts can exist and tools like Snowflake uh, make that possible. Okay. So, I mean, last in last in the last episode we recorded, I had Drew Bannon on and uh, Stuart Rice, and we were talking about, I suppose, the applicability of tools like DBT and I suppose in general, these modern uh, data stack tools that maybe had their roots in startups. Um, how they how well those concepts still applied to larger organizations that had, you know, I suppose more governance and more requirements around things like, I don't know, um, the uh, things like sort of production support and, and all that. I mean, how how well do you think these fit these tools fit with the with a company like HubSpot? And how much have you been tempted, I suppose, by the big vendors that come in and say, "Well, actually, now you're bigger. You should be looking at a solution from IBM or Oracle or whatever." Yeah, I think tools like DBT have a great chance in the larger organizations. Um, you know, there are certainly some. I would say, you know, if you think about the the, the really large, you know, um, you know, we're so we're about 3,300 plus people. Um, you know, we're not so big that, uh, and we're not in a highly regulated industry. So we do have some advantages where we can still be pretty nimble. And so I'm always less tempted by the, the really big enterprise, you know, tools that want to come in and more excited about things like DBT. And certainly we, you know, data governance and, you know, security and data validation and all these different things, they matter a lot to us. But I think for something like DBT, they know that, you know, and, and that community is is really built around uh, kind of, you know, setting good methodologies on how you model data, but also giving you a lot of the ability to plug in uh, your own tools and your own systems. And that's what we've been able to do with DBT is, as we use it is, you know, we can still, um, you know, run tests and validate data and uh, ensure that, you know, models are run, we can orchestrate them through Airflow if we wanted to, or, or whatever orchestration tool we want. It really is a nice product in terms of, it's not just a product, it truly is a platform. And I think that's the kind of things I always look for. So so you mentioned you mentioned Airflow a couple of times there, and I think a, a question a lot of people have is, is um, what problem does that solve beyond what you can do with DBT, say? And how do you get that balance of where do you put the fun- where do you put the functionality? I mean, wh- where does how do the two tools link together in your organization, and and why do you have both of them there, really? Yeah, we we look at Airflow as more of a general orchestration tool. So whether it's building our data models, which uh, and, and managing um, you know when those are built and dependencies, uh, it's great for that. Uh, but it's also great for, you know, managing uh, downstream dependencies. You know, so anything, uh, you might want to use it to, to, you know, fire off some, extract some loads early in the process or run some tests, you know, run like a, a more custom test suite. Uh, we also have, you know, we have a mix of of kind of legacy data models, uh, if you will, and DBT data models. So Airflow is nice in that we can use Airflow to, to tell DBT to, to execute its run and let DBT build out its own DAG uh, dynamically, but we can also have our our DAG of, of you know other tables and other data models we build in a different way. So I think Airflow is it's great as a generalized tool. It certainly um, you know doesn't make it as easy to solve uh, you know a lot of the dependency challenges that DBT just does for you, right? You know within your data models, uh, and I think the more people use DBT. Uh, the less likely they'll they'll want to go and uh, kind of build out their own dependencies and, and manage those in Airflow. But it's still a very useful tool, and for us, uh, something that we've we've had around for a while, and I think we'll continue to use. So how do you how do you share knowledge and things like uh, data dictionaries and data catalogs and so on with 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 the rest of the business? How, how do you share that knowledge and promote? Yeah, I suppose um, use of the right metrics and 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 so on. What was your thoughts around that? Yeah, it gets it gets harder as the organization gets bigger, um, and you know I've, I've been at some really small companies where, uh, you know, the challenge was more where do we when do we find the time to write documentation? Right, that's always the thing that, that people <laughs> struggle to find time, but they know is important. At a larger organization, I think we do a good job of writing it, 
Um, but it's about how do we publicize it and socialize it across the organization. So we do have a data catalog, something we built ourselves. Um, and, you know, it's something that as part of our, um, I mentioned code reviews, you know, as, as new data models are built, we sort of have a, a check to say, like, you know, is this in the data catalog? Um, you know, how is it documented? If we establish the owner for it, does it have tests? And so we're trying to do more and more of not just writing documentation and, you know, putting information in our data catalog, but standardizing how we do it so people know where to find it. So we have a great internal wiki at HubSpot that we use for everything, um, which is great, but it also makes, you know, specific things a little bit harder to find. Um, so as we as we build out documentation, especially on like a new data model or um, or even building out more like business requirements around, you know, why did we build this in the first place? You know, that should be in there. Uh, we're trying to standardize how those are, are written and, and tied together and make sure that people know where to start when they're looking for an answer of, you know, what does this metric mean? Or uh, what are the dependencies uh, of, of these tables? And so we're not only doing the documentation, uh, but we're also trying to build tools that make it easier to find and easier to generate as well. So there's there's a lot of investments we're making right now in, in that tooling uh, just to make it, you know, we want to make it easy for people to uh, not only write that information, uh, but also find that information. Okay. Um, so again, I suppose the, the, the not volume of data, but the, the, the um, you've got a lot of data points and a lot of people using it. How, how, do you, how do you ensure that it all actually adds up correctly in the end and people can trust the data? I mean, what's your strategy around things like testing and, and, and generally making sure that everything is trusted and, um, and uh, consistent, really? Yeah, it really is about, you know, as we're building out um, any kind of, you know, I've been calling it a data asset. I don't know if that's the right word, but a new data model or even uh, a set of models, uh, you know, around a particular uh, either business line or product feature. Early in the process, we we try to establish uh, how we're going to measure consistency and validity of data. So it's great that we have tooling where we can run tests, you know, and NDBT has, you know, test capabilities. Uh, there's all these things you can do, but uh, as you mentioned, you kind of have to know <laughs> what you're looking for and what to test for. So we try to make that part of the requirements gathering process of, you know, what are the things that we expect in this data? Uh, you know, revenue is a great example. Every company has this challenge, right? You know, you try to make sure that your revenue numbers are right. Every company you work for has multiple um, ways to measure revenue because there's you know, different business lines, there's different ways you can slice it. There's, you know, accounting uh, views by time period. And so really understanding what those are. And I find when we're making the documentation, uh, by that point on, you, you really know what you're testing for as well. You know, if you've been able to truly define what a metric is, you can go back and write tests to make sure. Um, where it gets a little challenging is making sure it's within certain bounds. We do some statistical testing, you know, to, to see if there's fluctuation on a certain metric, uh, you know, over time that has, that's been challenging in, in today's age, you know, when, when large events in the world happen, uh, metrics change wildly and set off all those alarms and you go, oh, wow, you know, does that really, is that an alarm or, or is it not? Um, but, you know, we try to do everything from, we really try to start with the basics of understanding what the value, uh, or sorry, what the metric means, write some tests to that, but then do some more of those generalized, you know, statistical tests and, uh, really kind of looking for outliers and, and other things like that. Okay. So how, what balance do you have between, so you mentioned Looker a couple of times earlier on, and obviously Looker can itself be a repository of, I suppose, business information and business logic and calculations and so on. And how do, what, how do you make the, the, the decision between what goes in Looker and what goes in the underlying data, data warehouse and DBT and so on? What was the kind of thinking around that? You know, it, it, we try to we try to start with you know who's going to use the data and for what purpose. And um, because we have that distributed team, you know, all able to build off of our warehouse. If it's data that's key to the business as a whole, we try to bring that down to the warehouse and then you know allow Looker to derive uh, kind of different views into it. If it's data that's very specific to a single analysis or you know um, product feature or something, uh, individual team. We're going to give them more leeway to kind of build that either in Looker or their own data mart uh, because it's really not shared 
you know, there's not those shared dependencies. There are times where even a very specific analysis is extremely, um, it's either extremely important to get, you know, exactly right, or it's a really heavy lift in terms of processing. And in those cases, we try to go and, and bring that down as far down on the stack, if you will, as we can. Uh, you know, we don't want to make Looker the place where, you know, uh, it's generating absolutely crazy SQL statements um, and hitting the warehouse. If we can say, oh, and we look for those. We have automated alerts that look for what we call our most expensive queries, which in Snowflake is actually true. You know, it's, uh, and we try to bring those down and, uh, you know, build the, build the aggregates and build the data models to enable that. So it is both a risk assessment as well as one that's more of like a, you know, kind of cost of processing assessment. Okay. So um, I mean, I've, I've used, um, I suppose, you, I've used Snowflake on a couple of projects where um, DBT has been involved and, 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 and we've been thinking about how we do, I suppose, things like CICD and, and, and how we can leverage some of the features in, in say, so Snowflake around, I suppose, virtual warehouses and, and, and things like that. How do you, how, is there any, are there any particular ways in which you leverage the special features of, of, of Snowflake for when you do kind of development and testing and, and, and maybe creating virtu- virtual environments for, for things like that? How, how does that kind of work? And is there anything you do around that area? Yeah, I would say one of the most helpful things that we can do is just immediately spin up like a clone of a warehouse. And that's something that, you know, coming from having worked with Redshift a lot is, is really not feasible. You know, we're, right now we can be working on a specific project. And, you know, we, we don't want to just do it in our kind of global dev environment uh, because it's just too big of a change or it's going to go on for a long time to just be able to say, I'm going to clone this, this warehouse and work on it has been uh, the, the amount of time saving there. And uh, really the, what it's allowed in collaboration of development as well, where you can, you know, invite other people to use your clone. Uh, that has been just amazing. Uh, the other thing I, we take advantage of a lot is being able to dynamically scale the warehouse. So again, I'm a big fan of Redshift, but you know it is once you've sized your warehouse, that's kind of where you're at. Um, and we can do things like uh, certain times of day scale up the warehouse because we know more people are, are using our local reports, um, or there's more development going on, or we have a really critical high volume job to run. You know, we'll just scale that up. You know. Uh, and then once it's done, scale it back down, you know, right in place. Those kind of features are, they totally change the way you run your development process and allow us to, to do things that we just could never do before. Okay. Okay. So, um, so when you, this an obvious question I've got now is when you recruit, you know, when you recruit people to the team, um, to work with you and to work and when HubSpot recruit people, what kind of qualities are you looking for and what sort of people do you typically um, being on board and um, how does their onboarding kind of take place and how did your onboarding take place really? Well, in the recruitment phase, you know, we're looking, we really have tried to build uh, a really diverse and caring team. Uh, and I, I mean that in terms of, you know, we like to bring in people who are collaborative, um, work well together. We, we don't necessarily bring in a lot of kind of, you know, uh, people that would be great sort of, you know, the individual who doesn't want to be part of a, a team. Um, it's, it's very much a team approach to development um, and not just in, uh, in data, but also on our software development teams. Uh, so that matters a lot to us. Uh, but we also look for people who are, are ready for change. HubSpot's a really dynamic company. We're always changing. Um, you know, we adjust to things uh, in the market. We adjust to things that we see you know, internally. We, we make strategic changes. And so I, I think it matters a lot that people you know, they're excited about what we're doing right now, but also excited about whatever comes next. So I, that matters, you know, just as much as skill sets. Um, from a skill perspective, you know, that, that's another thing. It changes over time, right? You know, as I've gone through my, my work history, there's a lot there. But, you know, certainly we look for fundamental skills, uh, you know, in each role. Um, and then the onboarding process at HubSpot is, is really great. Uh, it's unique. You know, I went through it not that long ago. And your first couple of weeks, you really learn about HubSpot as a company, but also HubSpot as a product. And, you know, at, at first, you know, people are like, well, do I need to know? I, I'm not selling HubSpot, you know, I'm a software engineer. But once you understand how it all works, you're able to, to think about the data in a different way. Um, you're able to really understand all the data that you're seeing come in 
what that means, you know, to the product. And it's not just a assembly line of ingesting data and modeling it and then uh, waiting for a specialist in, a, in some department to make sense of it. So it's, you know, it's, it's a very heavy onboarding process in terms of time, but it's extremely well run and, and you come out of it feeling like you've been there for a lot longer than a couple of weeks. Okay. So what about, uh, I mean, with the situation at the moment with coronavirus and so on, there's been a focus on, on remote working. I know, I think you've got particular interest in, in, in remote working in the past. Is that something that, is that something that works with data teams? Is it something that works with, um, with HubSpot at the moment? What are your thoughts on that? Well, for HubSpot, it definitely works. And, uh, you know, we, we were grateful um, that we had been really putting ourselves in a position to, to be remote friendly for the last couple of years at least. So you know, we have a couple of folks on my team that are already full-time remote. Um, I, you know, I live not too far from the office, but far enough that I like to, to work from home a few days a week back when we could go in the office. Um, and so we were, we were really set up for this uh, as best as you can be, you know, at least from a remote work perspective. Uh, in general, and, and, and you know, I should have mentioned that earlier, that, that's another thing that really attracted me to HubSpot too, was that you know, that's, that's something I, I am a strong believer in, that it, it works well. And it also really does uh, give employees even more autonomy and more control over their own life. Um, and I think with data teams, I think it works great. I, I think it's the kind of work where there it is collaborative, but it's also uh, there is the need to to have uninterrupted time. And one thing that's great about remote work is as long as you have the right setup and you know you're prepared for it. Um, you can certainly get that time a little bit easier than being in, you know, an open plan office. Uh, and with collaboration, uh, I think it's all about the way we communicate, you know, whether it's in the office um, or at home spread out, you know, the way that we, we communicate via Slack and Zoom and, and quite honestly, how we write. Uh, I think long form writing has been something that, that I've used to communicate, whether I'm in the office or, um, you know, or remote. And in data, that's often a great way, not just to communicate, but also to truly understand the problem. Uh, so a lot of that documentation you talked about uh, earlier on, that's, that's a method of communication, not just reference. And so something that as a remote company, we spend a lot of time, you know, making sure we're doing that. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, so, I mean, you've obviously got data liftoff and you've, you've written blogs before and so on. Do you find in general that's helped your career and helped you understand how concepts work and by being able to communicate to people, then you, you understand it better yourself, really. Absolutely. I, I've, I, I can't count the number of times I've said, I'm going to write a blog post on a topic and think I understand it until I start writing the blog post. You know, And then, um, you know, days later, after I've had to go and research all sorts of things, I, I, you know, finish up the post and then I come out of it and I know it a lot better than I did coming in. So for me, in some ways, uh, you know, blogging and, and any kind of writing, uh, teaches me a ton, and I hope it teaches other people too. Uh, but it's certainly a way to to really, if, you know, if you want to find out if you really know something, you know, try to write a, a really in depth blog post on it. And every time I've done it, it's it's proven whether I'm, you know, I know enough yet or not. Mm. Yeah, I mean, do that, I mean, I suppose HubSpot itself, with it, with its roots in that kind of area, I mean, I suppose HubSpot is quite supportive of of blogging and generally, I suppose, the community and. Um, putting content out there really as a way of, I suppose, understanding it yourself, but also as a way of marketing what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and HubSpot is, and I think it's also, there's that, um, before I joined HubSpot, you know, I was, I very much found myself reading a lot of content that HubSpot put out, uh, you know, the way that content is generated uh, really to be helpful, right? They, you know, we're one of the pioneers in inbound marketing and it's that, that concept has really stuck with me. It's, it's not about writing about, you know, uh, something that's helpful to the business. It's how do I write things that are helpful to either my potential customers or my, my current customers. And, and that's just totally changed the way that I thought about blogging. It was never really interesting to me until I, I kind of th thought about it that way. And that's what I've tried to do with data liftoff. 
Yeah, I, I tend to find as well that you know what goes around comes around, and I think if you if you share your knowledge with the community, <clears throat> then then you get more back in return for that straight away in terms of other maybe sort of uh, you know um, maybe kind of collaboration on what you're writing about, but just generally, I find that the more you put in, the more you get out really, and uh, and it's I think for for people like us, maybe I don't make yourself, but who, myself who maybe we're not the pun of the most obvious salespeople, a, a good way of actually communicating what you can do is to write about it and explain the kind of thinking behind it and, and that acts as a great form of um of, of kind of marketing with a way that is we're comfortable with really certainly yeah i've always you know being on the end of as a buyer for a long time in software i've really always appreciated companies where you know um I, i've been able to come to them and say you know hey I, i've read about your product i understand it i'm interested right and i, I know that salespeople love those inbound leads too so it, it's great being on both sides of it it's just a little bit more it, it's setting up that initial connection and kind of taking away that cold aspect to it, which I'd never been a big fan of cold selling. I, when I was doing data liftoff and consulting, I never tried to cold sell my services. It's just not something I'm comfortable doing. Exactly. Exactly. So you've been, I mean, you've been doing this, uh, you've been in this industry, industry for a while now and you're still, it sounds like you're still fairly, you're still fairly technical. I mean, what's your thoughts on, I suppose, the engineering career path and does it always end up being a manager or does it, have you managed to sort of, um, to keep your hands, you know, in with what you're doing really? What's your thoughts on the career path for, for engineers really? Well, I'm really passionate about engineers not having to go into management, but being given the opportunity to go into management. Um, I know that traditionally uh, at, a, at a lot of companies, it seemed engineers could really, they would hit a wall unless they would jump into management. You know, So they'd become a great engineer and uh, sort of be rewarded by managing the team and getting to do less of what they love to do and what they were good at. Uh, and, and that was, I've seen a lot of people burn out because of that. You know, They never wanted to manage people. Uh, they love writing code. You know, they love architecting systems. And so I, I, I want to make sure there's a career path for people like that. Um, and I know HubSpot is very supportive of that. You know, we have very clear, both individual contributor, we call them, you know, career paths where you don't need to manage people, but you can continue to grow, take on more technical responsibility and management career paths. Um, and some people bounce back and forth. Uh, you know, some people, um, I've worked with several people over my, my career who got into management, didn't like it, went back to engineering. Um, and, and fell right back into place. So, uh, I, you know, I think both are great for me. Um, I, I, I've always been a little bit more drawn toward management. I still love to code uh, when I can, uh, you know, and mostly now that's, that's as a hobby rather than at work, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, it's, it is something that I think it's great to kind of keep your skills sharp. Um, but once you make the decision to go into management, it, it definitely is a clear trade-off that I think people just need to be explicit about saying, you know, I, I just can't do both. You know, it, doing two things well is is really challenging for for most of us, including myself. So uh, I like that there's multiple paths, I'm very supportive. Um, and, I, and I love that people can experiment. Companies should give them the space to do that. Okay. Well, it's been great speaking to you, James. But how do people find out about Data Liftoff then and get access to some of your blog posts and uh, things you've written? Yeah, so you can uh, go to dataliftoff.com or uh, there's a Twitter account as well. It's uh, at dataliftoff. And uh, I try to, you know, still post there as often as I can. And uh, pretty soon planning on getting some guest posts as well. So it will be content from more of the data community in the coming months as well. Fantastic. Well, it's been great speaking to you. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, thanks very much, James. Yeah, thank you. This has been awesome. (laughs) 